Hi, everyone. My co-host Luke is a stern taskmaster who would be very upset if I didn't tell you about the Michael and Us Patreon. For a mere five Yankee dollars per month, you get an extra episode every week. In recent episodes, we've discussed the Rambo franchise, specifically the fourth entry from 2008, The Flash, Air Force One, Tim Burton's Ed Wood, and Ingmar Bergman's Persona. We've also had a recent run of Pink Floyd-related material. Luke produced and hosted a special documentary episode on the making of Adam Hart Mother, as well as an interview with drummer Nick Mason. And, from the sublime to the ridiculous, we did a deep dive into the worst piece of internet content of all time, the Nostalgia Critics Review of The Wall. All that and more on Patreon.com slash MichaelAndUs. We're also grateful to partner with Jacobin Radio. Be sure to check out other great shows on the Jacobin Radio network like Behind the News, Long Reads, and The Dick. God's not dead, he's surely alive, he's living Gentlemen, are we are we good? Yeah, welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage, welcome back everyone. And a very special guest on this episode. You know him from The New Republic. You know him from the previous episode on the first film in the God's Not Dead franchise, which I haven't seen that film, but I've seen the movie on this episode, and I, I think that should count for several movies. <laughs> uh, who are you, sir? I'm Alex Shepard. Uh... The, uh, yeah, religious right correspondent for <laughs> Michael and us. Welcome back. And and I just very wanna... professional of well there to get the guest to have to say his own name right off the top. <laughs> uh, I, I just want to clarify something. Have you seen every entry in the God's Not Dead franchise? I have not seen the most recent one. Well, there's a new one coming out this year. So I don't know. I think at this point, we're pretty much locked into, you know, you were joking, Alex, that you're the religious right correspondent. I think you're definitely the God's not dead correspondent. I think over the next few years, we're just going to have to do every single film in this franchise. I think the sixth one, which I believe is called Rise Up, is coming out sometime this year. And like, it seems that there's been a bit of a degeneration in, in the series, at least judging by, I mean, they, critically, they've always been pan but like the box office numbers have gone down from like 50 million 25 million 7 million 1 million and it'll be interesting to see like how something that's this bad can degenerate but it's a question we're all going to explore together i can't wait yeah we'll discuss i mean i'm curious because it does seem like it may fit in a little bit more with the current right-wing atmosphere than yes. the last few would have which i think and also our guy harold cronk of course the director of uh, the first two installments he's back for the fifth one so they sort of drifted away so um, yeah you know the god's not dead it's a, bit, it's a bit like twin peaks it's like you can just skip that whole second season and then with the return you know cronk's back folks um all right so if you didn't hear our previous episode which a uh, pretty recent one honestly one of our most popular episodes uh, of late anyway I think one of our most popular episodes of the year. Uh, Alex came on in Will's absence to talk about the first installment of the blockbuster Christian film series, God's Not Dead. That episode was called Know Thyself. Check it out if you haven't heard it already or if you, you need more context. We'll get back to God's Not Dead in a little bit. But Alex, the last time you were here, we checked in with you about the Republican primaries, the state of the race and, uh, you know, the shape of things to come. 
as things stood then, you know, basically Donald Trump was winning and uh, Ron DeSantis, I can't remember if he'd officially declared yet, but uh, I think there was already a sense, uh, you know, I think two of us agreed sort of the sheen was coming off and uh, boy, the sheen has come off even more since then. Uh, You've been writing about Ron DeSantis. Yeah, I mean, I've enjoyed watching this entire thing unfold and it's been kind of fascinating to watch, I think, somebody make so many mistakes so quickly. And I think also too, I mean, the Republican donor class literally cleared the field for this clown uh, and they spent months and hundreds of millions of dollars doing it and countless, you know, I mean, the amount of effort that it took, I think probably was extraordinary. Uh, And then he got into the race and everyone was like, oh, we're finally getting a look at this guy for the first time. He's terrible. He is cold. (laughs) He's aloof. And also his entire theory of the race is crazy. I mean, everybody is basically still running to Trump's right on basically every issue and it's not working for any of them. And that is causing everybody to just do this even more. So, yeah, I've been following DeSantis. I'm hoping to do a sort of bigger piece about how this is like the Florida primary. But right now, I mean, I think with DeSantis, like, you know, I had a piece that went up today so this is monday the 17th that was basically making the case that he's the 2024 race is answered ted cruz that this is a candidate who like on paper i think is appealing as an alternative to trump but the problem is once you look under the hood even though he might he might sort of work for conservative voters the problem is that he's just gross and abhorrent and nobody likes him the culture war stuff that DeSantis is running on obviously worked for him in Florida, and it's worked for a number of Republican candidates on a local level. Why has this not been able to translate nationally, do you think, or at least has not been able to unseat Trump, who hasn't exactly been running on that kind of thing? I mean, I think that there are two slightly contradictory answers that I would have. One is that like DeSantis's success in Florida was actually not really based on culture war stuff. It was based on, I mean, it was to the extent that it was about opposing COVID stuff, but he sort of lost that. And I mean, in general, his first term, he largely avoided these types of fights. He only sort of shoehorned them in once he realized he was going to be a presidential candidate. And I think the extent to which that's worked in Florida is kind of up for grabs. I think mostly, weirdly, there's a sense, you know, at least among Republicans and Republican leaning voters that you sort of tolerate that stuff. But mostly he's been like a decent steward for the state. He kept it open during COVID. Lots of people have moved there. The economy's doing really well, et cetera, et cetera. The other, though, is just, you're just like, if you want a pugilist, like culture warrior, then you've got Donald Trump, right? You've got the real deal. And he he proves it all the time, kind of, by just going after whoever he feels like it. And I think the other version of it, too, is Trump's culture war stuff is slightly scarier in some sense and that it feels unpolitical. It feels improvised, or at least I think it has the feeling of authenticity or at least not being a politician's culture war, whereas DeSantis is just pure talking points. So I think that, you know, it's just that Trump has had that lane taken care of, even though he often does doesn't seem that enthusiastic about it. You can see the palpable sense of exhaustion now that he has to talk about like trans athletes or whatever. But still, you know, that that's my theory, at least. You know, Alex, you brought up Ted Cruz. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, 2016 and that, uh, you know, the sort of clown car Republican primary back then is, I think, in many ways, a very useful reference point to what's going on now, particularly with DeSantis and with the sort of panic among, you know, a certain segment of the Republican elite and the Republican machinery that, you know, led them all to invest in so much in DeSantis in the first place. I mean, it strikes me that he's a very close analog to Ted Cruz. 
he's also an analog to Jeb Bush in the sense that part of the theory behind his campaign was that like, look, if you just literally shovel money into a candidate, that can overcome whatever limitations they might have, which like, as you saw with great luminaries like Jeb Bush, and then in 2020, Michael Bloomberg, you know, there actually are limits to what money can buy if somebody is just unlikable, or if in the case of Jeb Bush, I mean, they just are like, a weakling and they're like constantly getting bullied in public and releasing these like cringy ads and things like that. But then in other ways, you know, the DeSantis campaign, you know, it incorporates uh, the failures of the Marco Rubio campaign as well. You know, another politician from Florida who was another sort of figure highly groomed by the Republican machinery who also just fell totally flat in the face of Donald Trump, who sort of just did everything, you know, followed the script that the machinery wrote for him definitely had campaign staffers who are the kinds of people that are now working for DeSantis, like, you know, young National Review bloggers and that kind of stuff who are doing these really, I mean, I think of the many fuck ups of the DeSantis campaign so far, I mean, these ads that they're doing that, you know, run the gamut from awful to just repellent and insane, uh, the ones where he's got like, you know, glowing red eyes and stuff. It's like a 21 year old Yale young conservative conservative, you know, trying to be based or whatever. And that's just not how you win a primary electorate. Like this is a party of old white people, or at least that's like, that's their electorate. So the DeSantis campaign doesn't just seem based on like one theory that failed against Donald Trump. It's like a pastiche of all the different failures. And, you know, I talk a lot and I write a lot about how liberals have learned nothing from 2016. They've learned nothing from losing to Donald Trump. But it's abundantly clear that, you know, the sections of the Republican right that don't like Donald Trump. They haven't learned a thing either. Uh, I've got a poll in front of me, I think is the latest poll out today. I don't know if this is officially the biggest lead that Donald Trump has recorded over DeSantis, but in this poll, he's at 53 and DeSantis is at 14, followed uh, with 7% by uh, Ramaswamy, uh, who is going to be, uh, well, either the Andrew Yang or the Pete Buttigieg of the race. We're, we're, we're not sure yet. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's it's one of the things that I keep thinking about, too, is like for a while... I think the dominating or the the most important theory on in Republican politics post once it became clear that Trump wasn't going away was that you could essentially do a kind of Diet Coke version of him that you could create a candidate that was gave you 75 or 80 percent of what you got from the real thing, but was more tolerable to to the, the sort of fundraising, you know, elite portion of the base. And so you got this kind of DeSantis in DeSantis, I think, is the most prominent version of this type of candidate who then kind of uh, reverse engineers it right by picking these weird fights with Disney and banning books and doing all these things that sort of communicate that you're out there to fight. And I think that, you know, there's probably some truth to that. But the problem is just that Trump is still out there. And I think what you see from the Republican base, which is something that we'll talk about with the illustrious <laughs> film that we'll be discussing soon, is that what they really want is somebody who goes out there and fights and they want to be picking fights with libs. They don't have to win these fights. It's just the idea that they're a martyr. It's a sort of virtuous cycle of picking fights and then being martyred for them. And like nobody is better than that than than Trump. And everyone else who's tried thus far, like DeSantis, like comes across as a kind of, well, I already used a Diet Coke analogy, but, you know, just an artificial version of it. It's clear that this is being jerry-rigged, right? It's clear that DeSantis is doing the politician version of the pugilist thing. And I think with Trump, like the thing that to me at least best explains his appeal to the base is still the thing that confuses the pundits or the elite. It is the fact that he's 
incompetent. It's the fact that he's unhinged. <laughs> it's that he he doesn't actually get things done because that proves that he's real, right? Like it, it, if you hate politicians, you want somebody who is in fact slightly ineffective, whereas the kind of DeSantis version is still glossy. It's still is not going to get into too much trouble ever. And so I think we're just still stuck in the same dynamic, even though people sound more like Donald Trump than they did in 2016. They still sound like a normal politician. So if you're and I think DeSantis in particular is just, you know, being governor of a big state, too. You don't have to deal with voters. So you see this guy in a fucking diner in New Hampshire or whatever, and he just is he just looks off like Chris Christie is still way, way better, you know, with the glad handing aspect of things. But, yeah, I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, the other issue here, too, is now every candidate running against Trump has the exact same theory of the race, which is that another thing we'll talk about momentarily, which is that, you know, they, they're looking at this slice of the electorate that's 35 to 40 percent Protestant evangelicals. And they're like, well, I can lock those people up by running to Trump's right on abortion and a bunch of other things. And, but the problem is that you've got now you have the Mr. Burns illness problem is that they're all trying to run through the same door at the same time and they're just all <laughs> stuck there. So, you know, basically you're just seeing the same issue, which is that Trump has 51 percent of the electorate and everyone else is fighting for 49 percent. And it's just sort of divided between DeSantis, Scott. Yeah. A few other people. Vivek, a few other people. Also, Trump got three Supreme Court justices. So even on those issues, he kind of has them beat. I think I might have said a version of this last time uh, we spoke, Alex, but I mean, to me, the, the qualitative distinction, you know, between the forms of right wing politics represented by Donald Trump versus, you know, that represented by Ron DeSantis is that DeSantis and, you know, all the others as well, or at least all the ones which is most of them who are responding to Trump by trying to run to his right, they all think that Trumpism is just feeding the base red meat. And the thing about their model is that it's fundamentally reactive. So, you know, uh, I think you said when last we spoke that, you know, DeSantis theory of politics is just if Republicans are, are talking about something online, he just makes a law out of it and he gives it to them, right? Donald Trump has a way of sort of making and reshaping reality for his public that someone like DeSantis doesn't have. I mean, Donald Trump has made a whole bunch of like feral, like Fox News loving Republican voters. He's made them hate Anna Wintour, okay? <laughs> like that's a fundamentally different kind of politics than whatever uh, Ron DeSantis is doing. I did want to talk about Vivek Ramaswamy, but since I know we're all vibrating to talk about the film, uh, I, 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 want to, I want to segue into that, uh, just stay on the subject of Donald Trump for a moment and talk about um, what I think is objectively the greatest Donald Trump impression of all time. And I'm talking about James Austin Johnson from SNL. Trump just wanted to be on TV. I mean, that's why yeah. he ran for president at all, was he was just... I always thought that Trump should be he shouldn't be president. I, I, he should be hosting some sort of entertainment tonight type gossip show. Yeah. yeah. He's such a gossipy old, you know, queen that he he just needs to be being like, uh, coming up next, it's my exclusive interview with Courtney Cox. <laughs> Who has she seen canoodling outside of L.A. Swanky, the Vine restaurant? More on that. Plus, Pamela Anderson's new raw vegan cookbook. Yes, you can eat that way too. It's done. I'll see you later. 
Like, that's what that guy really should be doing. He just wants to be on TV, you know? I mean, incredible. Like, I think they should create just, like, Nobel Prize for best Trump impression. And, you know, he's the only guy that's ever eligible to win it. I mean, I don't know. I I feel like in order to impersonate Donald Trump like that, you have to have some kind of deep, intuitive insight about what makes Donald Trump tick. Well, you have have to, on some level, not be horrified by him, I think. Possibly, Uh, yeah. there, There are so many impressions of him by people who find him so repellent that they turn him into a gargoyle, you know? They're not willing to sort of interrogate the thought patterns. Well, it seems to me that a lot of Trump impressions fail because the instinct is always to be as exaggerated as possible. And the thing is, that doesn't work with Donald Trump because everything about him is already an exaggerated parody and on some level, like quite self-consciously. So I feel like James Austin Johnson understands that the only way to impersonate Donald Trump is to actually just copy him like exactly copy him yes on on a technical level like he's got all of his intonation and his like extremely bizarre speech patterns and stuff he's got them down to the t then he's also got like the way donald trump's brain works the odd way that he segues from one topic to another and like the the weird things he's concerned about and the thing is i mean that that clip we just played i mean you can basically imagine donald trump saying that like there's a world in which donald trump didn't run for president and he is just hosting that show you know james austin johnson was hypothesizing and it would sound exactly like that i don't know if you saw his impression of louis ck that was going viral this week but there was something similar there where you know most impressionists kind of get a vocal hook and they build their impression out from that but he sort of figured out how louis ck builds a joke or slides into a joke sort of mastered the rhythm or the stream of consciousness of of his thought which is a different skill than technical mastery yeah i I guess I, by, I mean, I always hated the Alec Baldwin impression for a lot of reasons, <laughs> some relating to just Alec Baldwin's general existence, but... Well, no, he's a very good man, yes, let's be clear. Right? Yes, yeah. he's, a, he's a great man, yes. What happened to him is terrible. Um, you know, the work he's done for Woody Allen, you know, years is commendable in so many ways. <laughs> teaching Woody about podcasting. It's really... <laughs> did, I, I, Alex, did you watch his uh, Instagram live interview with Woody oh, Allen? Yeah. Oh, what a, what a what a beautiful thing that was. <laughs> oh, Alec Baldwin yelling at his maid is like... As, as Woody's Wi-Fi keeps, keeps falling apart. Yeah. yeah. We've lost Woody. We've lost Woody. <laughs> <laughs> but with the impression, I mean, it was setting aside its general hamminess. It was also it conceived of Trump as this kind of outer borough thug. And I think that that's just wrong. And I think that the James Austin Johnson version treats Trump as the Florida man that he is. Like, he is a yes. gossipy old queen. And I think that at heart, he's somebody who, I mean, this is like the documents case. It's why the documents case is so funny. It's that he just wants to go and show various like B and C list political figures and celebrities <laughs> like the Iranian nuclear plants or whatever. Yeah, he wants to he wants to boast to a guy that owns like a chain of used car dealerships that he has access to classified documents. Yeah. It's it's great. Like it's funny to me. Like it's you know, it's just funny, you know, like I write for a liberal magazine and then you get emails from readers and like one of the things that have, has made people the angriest is like when I write about the documents case, I'm just like, oh he just 
just kept these because he's a vain loser. You know, and people <laughs> would be like, well, how dare you? He was obviously going to sell them to the Russians for millions of dollars. <laughs> they they want to believe it was more meaningful than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's like this is the stuff that matters to him. Uh, and that's it's inherently really funny. Like he is facing probably 70 felony counts because he just wants to seem important. Right. And like the thing about the presidency is that you don't get like a scepter or whatever. You know, you just are president and then you stop being president. And this is like proof that he, you know, it's like how I spent my summer vacation or something. It's like literal proof that he was once the most powerful person in the world. But but yeah, mostly with him, though, you're just like, you know, there's the other great Trump quote from the end of the 2020 election where he's just looking at the beautiful trucks and he's just like, I wish I could get in one of those and drive back <laughs> to my old life, which was so beautiful. And <laughs> the thing I love about the, especially about the celebrity thing is you're like, this is, he's sort of like an Alan Partridge figure at heart. <laughs> he's somebody who is fixated by these kind of trivial B list, C list feuds and can't let them go ever. And then again, also too, there's just, I think that he gets that nobody else does is the way that, I mean, I doubt, don't know why I'm thinking of this stupid quote from the, uh, they pulled from the Scorsese Dylan documentary where Allen Ginsberg is talking about how Bob Dylan had become like one with his breath or something. And it's like, you know, obviously when <laughs> Dylan was doing enough amphetamines to kill a donkey, which is obviously not, and doing this kind of terrible George Carlin free association stuff while writing great songs too. I digress. But I think there is a thing with him where he kind of, in both his written speech and his speech, everything becomes this kind of long run on sentence in which like <laughs> things will suddenly be shoved in as he thinks about them which is why the scooby-doo one is so good but like nothing right nothing really like makes sense and yet it is always so recognizably from the brain of somebody who is literally their entire existence was formulated around how do i get in the new york post every day I wonder if Trump has ever listened to subterranean homesick blues <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we've got a hell of a movie to talk about this week. I mean, where do you even start with this? It is God's Not Dead 2. Uh, right off the top, I love that they don't bother to give the movies in this series like distinct <laughs> names. Uh, it's, you know, God's Not Dead. And, you know, this is basically just the same movie, slightly rewritten. And uh, would you believe it, folks? God, uh, he's still alive. In fact, he's surely alive, as the film reminds us many, many times. In this day and age, people seem to forget that the most basic human right of all is the right to believe. No prayers, no moments of silence, nothing. Think of the other children out there who are subjected to their repressive belief system. If we sit by and do nothing, the pressure that we're feeling today will mean persecution tomorrow. We're at war. What makes nonviolence so radical is its unwavering commitment to a nonviolent approach. Isn't that sort of like what Jesus meant when he said that we should love our enemies? Yes. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. One of your students sent a text to their parents. Did this happen? If you're asking whether I responded to a student's question, yes. And your answer incorporated the words of Jesus. What were you thinking, Greg? But I mean, I don't know. Where do you guys want to start with this? Well, can I just start on a, on a kind of technical level? I didn't like the look of the movie. <laughs> uh, it's shot in scope, which I thought was a little excessive, given what's contained within the frames. 
And there were many scenes when I thought the production design was very poor. Like, for example, there's a scene late in the film when the, uh, hang on, I, I, Sabrina the Teenage Wish, what's her name? Melissa Joan Hart and Jesse Metcalf are sitting in her home and they're sitting at her dining room table and there are a lot of pictures on the wall and they're, they're all staged in such a way to make you think, huh, I don't normally notice the pictures on the wall in a movie. And the movie is full of scenes like that. There are many scenes that take place in a coffee shop, a kind of breakfast (laughs) nook place, where you think, I shouldn't be noticing what the water jugs look like on the table in the background. I shouldn't be noticing, like, the way the extras are arranged. So on the level of form, I didn't care for it. But on the level of content, it spoke to me very deeply. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you didn't like the cinematography, but I mean, the script and the message, you know, those are solid. Well, you know, can I I just say, if we've cited every problematic celebrity already, and and if I can cite one more, uh, Roman Polanski... (laughs) Um, you know, when he makes a film that's set in one location, which this movie basically is, you know, you look at Repulsion, um, it, you understand the achievement of a movie like that when you look at a movie like this. Uh, the courtroom scenes in this movie, the editing, the staging, it's also arbitrary and you get so kind of tired of just looking at the same three shots over and over again. And it makes you realize how important the presence of a director who knows when to cut, you know, how to use editing to build tension um how to arrange objects in the frame to very subtly convey like the power dynamics of any given interaction um so i think i think you know students of film can learn a lot from watching this movie uh yeah there are multiple scenes of this movie several scenes in which large groups of high school children assemble and every one of them is about 35 seconds too long. And yeah. it's just like the weirdest looking people in all of Arkansas gather. You know, like <laughs> this one where some kid is just showing up in like wraparound sunglasses to a pro-Christian protest that I just found deeply distracting. However, one thing I was going to say is I actually thought this movie was much more technically accomplished than the first one. <laughs> Basically just at every level. And I think, uh, which, you know, I think the absence of Kevin Sorbo probably goes a long way in just increasing the the base level of competence. Um, well, what I will say regarding the acting is that I thought the movie had a, a not terrible cast, given the materials, including several veterans who deliver perfectly workmanlike performances. Ernie Hudson as the judge is given it 110%. I think Ernie Hudson is quite good yeah. in, a, in a poorly written role. Of course, uh, Laura Palmer's father, uh, uh, Ray Wise, as if you've seen The Verdict, he's playing the James Mason character. Yes. And you uh, ACLU judge. Yeah, that, that's right. <laughs> the great Pat Boone shows up. At oh, my, oh, how could I forget? OK, I, I'd like to exclude him from what I said earlier. OK, so we will uh, we'll discuss some specific points in this movie. But I mean, just to attempt to give a brief summary of the plot, um, I'm going to say just in advance, uh, because I will make mistakes in trying to explain this. I will fuck up because this is a labyrinthine plot. It has not only an A and a B story, but a C and a D story as well. As with God's Not Dead Part 1, I don't know, there's just like, there's too many plots. There's so much excess. Like, a a lot of the plots don't really interact with one another or other. They don't intersect. And even if they do, the intersections are somewhat arbitrary. 
But basically, look, the first movie in this series, if you didn't hear me and Alex talk about it already, uh, the plot is there's a young kid who goes to college uh, and he's a he's a Christian. And then uh, his uh, heathen professor, you know, his heathen lib professor played by Kevin Sorbo challenges him to a, a debate because uh, because wait, I'm forgetting. He, he, de- he demand. Does he not demand? He demand- Kevin Sorbo. <laughs> day one, lesson one is you have to write on a sheet of paper. God is dead. And sign yeah, it. Right. Yeah. And sign it. And, and sign it. it. And, yeah. sign it. and that's, I don't know, you're, that's your attendance grade or whatever for the for the that's, class. That's, you don't pass if you don't say that. That's Correct. Right. He will fail and you so, automatically. But then he gets very yeah. red and mad uh, when this child refuses to and then devotes the next six weeks of class to debate. That's right. They spend, they spend the whole semester uh, where it's Kevin Sorbo debating this like 19-year-old in just like the most pedantic series of debates you can possibly imagine. And then at the end of the movie, it turns out that Kevin Sorbo, oh yeah, who by the way is like a shitty boyfriend to you know the former student he's dating who's a who's a christian and he like is mean to her because she you know believes in uh, unreason and such she uh, also doesn't know about wine that's a big Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. She doesn't know about wine, and she can't like talk about I don't know Max Weber or whatever like lib professors talk about with their sophisticated friends when they get together. But then, yeah, at the end of the movie, it turns out you know Kevin Sorbo is actually he's not actually an unbeliever. He's just a lapsed Christian, and he's mad at God because God did something bad to him. I can't remember. Alex, do you remember what God did? Died. Even though I mean, it's sort of weird because in the movie's cosmology. God is interventionist and rewards good people and punishes bad people. So Kevin Sorbo <laughs> is sort of right to be angry at God because God <laughs> killed his mother for no reason. But yes, he, you learn that because he prayed to God and his mother died anyways, that he hates God. That's right. And so uh, what you need to understand, uh, all of you listening at home about God's Not Dead 2, is that it's essentially the exact same movie uh, with a few of the pieces you know, rearranged. So uh, in this one, the plot is that uh, Sabrina the teenage witch is a uh, public school teacher who is a Christian. One day, an earnest young student in her class who has just lost a brother whose parents are atheists, that's very important. And the reason we know they're atheists is because they have weird art in their house. Will was talking oh, uh, about... Yeah, I, I, I love this. You look at you look at the walls <laughs> and, you know, most of the set decoration and production design struck me as very arbitrary. But in this case, they had some, like, kind of Cy Twombly meets Basquiat type canvases you know some scribbles and some colors <laughs> it's it's meant to show like that they're debased and postmodern because in all of the christian settings all the art is very direct and to the point it's just like nationalist iconography or just like images socialist realism and you know yeah yeah and it's funny too because aside from that all of their houses are identical they're all these kind of like soulless textureless mcmansions <laughs> but but the 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 art does all the kind of heavy lifting. <laughs> but okay, so, so Sabrina the Teenage Witch is teaching this class, and this young student who's just lost her brother, you know, the, the classes, they're talking about uh, nonviolent protests. They're talking about Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. And then the student stands up, and she's like, hey, that thing you just said about Gandhi, isn't that just like when Jesus said yada, yada, yada? And then Sabri- and then the whole class, it, a pin drop. Like, <laughs> yeah. uh-oh. Can she say that? <laughs> so, yeah. And then, and then uh, Sabrina the Teenage Witch 
replies, uh, why, yes, that is in fact true. And then, you know, it's only like five minutes later that we then get a scene where like uh, Sabrina the Teenage Witch is basically, and by the way, I'm just going to call her that for the rest. I can't remember the so, character's so, name. So George Soros is listening in. He, the, the room is bugged. <laughs> yeah. There's a fifth columnist who's among their ranks who's, you know, doing Morse code. <laughs> da, 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 You know. Uh, yeah, so the principal's office has a direct line to ACLU HQ and they send a, they throw up the bat signal and the ACLU lawyers like descend on the class or on the school in record time. And there's this fucking amazing scene like a few minutes on from the classroom scene where this like stern, you know, teacher who's, you know, I guess uh, outranks Sabrina the Teenage Witch is like walking her down the corridor and she's like, did you really talk about Jesus in the class? And it's basically like, okay, well, you know, we're going straight to room 101 for re-education. And then she goes in there and yeah, there's like this committee of heathens that's just like already shown up to persecute her. Awesome. Her, evil, her evil union representative. That's uh, Robin Givens is the person who's, who I believe is the principal of the school. That, that, that's right. The former Mrs. Tyson is in this film. Yes. <laughs> yes. And is, is one of the people who is not particularly good although she i think understands the assignment maybe more than <laughs> unlike ernie hudson who, who is delivering a solid performance she knows that her job is to be very evil so so for having mentioned for having accepted a question about jesus and and said well yeah when you think about it uh gandhi and jesus did both practice nonviolent resistance and in fact i would go so far as to say that i'm glad they both did that's essentially the extent of the proselytizing uh the attorneys are there and she refuses to apologize. They, they confront her and they say, uh, is it true that you responded to a question by making reference to remarks allegedly made by Jesus? <laughs> Film is full of great... So many times in this movie, it's always the alleged <laughs> remarks of Jesus Christ. Which is... who, who allegedly, Jesus Christ who allegedly lived 2,000 years ago. Uh, so look, the whole thing prompts a court case and the... You know, this, the goes to a, this goes to trial. Yeah, this goes to a jury trial, which is definitely very realistic. And and this is the sort of A plot of the film, but there's like, yeah, there's three other stories. So the earnest Chinese student from the first movie whose father is an overbearing unbeliever, he's in this movie and his plot is that, uh, well, he doesn't really have much of an arc. He uh, believes in Jesus at the start of the movie, and then he believes in Jesus even harder by the end of the movie. And he goes repeatedly to another character who recurs from the first movie, uh, Pastor Dave, who, if you uh, heard Alex and I discuss the first movie, his whole plot is is that he and a sort of visiting pastor from Africa who's a little more senior than him, they want to go to Disney World, but they, they can't rent a car because the cars they keep renting or the car they rent breaks down because the non-believing car salesman is too distracted by his dinner theater. That guy also makes a cameo in this movie. I think I'm doing justice to that plot, by the way. I think it actually is that convoluted. Doesn't really serve a purpose. Well, Pastor uh, Dave also serves, he is inexplicably juror number 12 in this. Uh, he then gets appendicitis, so he's removed from the trial. I, I feel like that was just put in to like arbitrarily intersect the plots because if you took all the Pastor Dave stuff out, the whole movie would make sense. Like Pastor Dave essentially adds nothing to the movie except being like this earnest presence. And in, I guess he's kind of the most like relatable and if I can put it this way, likable character as well because he's just kind of like a normal nice guy. He's the producer on the movies as well, I believe. Well, if he's the producer, that 
kind of explains it. He's pro- he probably this is probably part of like the contractual terms is that he has to be a recurring character. I have to say, cards on the table. Pastor Dave is my personal favorite character. I, I didn't feel that strongly about him, but I I did. Li- you know, in any of these Christian movies that I've watched, which have not been all that many, there's been a strong vibe of uh, we're really normal. And you can see that in this character, like he's, you know, got his uh, shirt unbuttoned at the top collar. Uh, he's got a little bit of stubble. He's got some kind of fashionable, long, disheveled hair. He's he, has, like, he has normal human foibles. Like he doesn't like that he has so much homework. So he's like, he's always like, God damn it. Can I just believe in Jesus? Why do I have to memorize all these passages? This is crazy. This is totally crazy. So he one thing he really doesn't like, which is unlike anyone else, is he hates jury duty. I was yes. like, well, yeah. this is crazy. Who's like this before? But 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 you see 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 I, I I like that and it's like when you see the newsboys you know the uh, the hot yeah the news fo- folks the the newsboys you know whom you love them the hot bands the newsboys when you see them kind of chilling on their tour bus you know one of them's picking out a guitar somebody else is I don't know hanging around like they they give off like a real vibe of like we're normal you know like we're not a weird Christian band we're like we're like a normal like like a normal Christian band and there there's a kind of like studied normal to pretty much every texture <laughs> in this movie. And it weirds me out. You know, my kind of Christian fundamentalist movie is something like If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do? You know, a movie that, like, does not pretend to be normal, you know? <laughs> yeah, I agree. That is the strangest thing about the films in this series is that, I mean, I, I, I think uh, I think you're right, Will, that the people who make them, uh, yeah, the whole mindset is, you know, we're the normal people. We're the sort of persecuted, silent majority. And, like, we're cool. We go to college coffee shops. Yeah, we, we have music. That's right. And also, I mean, very important to the plot of this movie and also the plot of the first movie is that these films are not really arguing for a right-wing evangelical Christian viewpoint from a kind of a, a, a position of, I mean, they're not arguing from revelation. They're arguing from reason, ironically enough. So every single one of these films, I mean, I guess, Alex, you've seen more of them than we have, but it's probably a fair extrapolation based on the first two that they all kind of center around these, you know, unbelievable Unbelievably pedantic and convoluted granular arguments for the idea that right-wing evangelical Christianity is literally objectively true. And honestly, even the evidence we have from secular sources tells us that. So the only reason why you wouldn't believe in this is if you're like, is if you're suppressing something or you're just too clouded by, you know, the, the poison that is, you know, postmodern secular society or whatever. I mean, there's a, I think that the normalcy of the aesthetic is essential to what makes these movies interesting to me, which is that they are made by a group that is arguably the most powerful group of people in America, which would be white Protestant evangelicals. Um, these are people who and now I'm going to really go off, but I'm just like, you know, these are people that they control the fucking Supreme Court, you know, like they you know, um, run the country more or less. And they're winning. They've been winning for a really long time. But the movie presupposes that actually they're a persecuted minority. And I think that it gets at one of the core anxieties of the post-civil rights era of the American right, which is like, oh, there are these persecuted groups and we don't like these people. But like, you know, American culture acknowledges them as this. But what if we are actually the persecuted ones. But the normalcy is the thing that sort of gives the game away because none of these people are risking anything, right? You know, the court case in this literally doesn't make any sense because they can't actually articulate what is on trial. Well, one, you never understand what it is. It's ostensibly a civil case, but they treat it like it's a criminal case. There's this fundamental insecurity in it because it acts as if 
you know, in fact, there's this cabal of people who are that the shadowy cabal, the ACLU. In the first movie, it's like higher education. And then eventually there's this plot line with Pastor Dave, which is based on this like very minute case in Houston that happened in 2014, where a bunch of priests are subpoenaed and they have to deliver their sermons. They never really say why. They say it's something to do with this other case. And then he is eventually hauled off to jail. And I don't know if you guys made it to the cut scene in the, the closing scene in this movie. No, oh, oh, no, no sorry. We, 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 we went out to the news boys. So t- hit us no, with it. I should have told you to keep watching. So this is what I, <laughs> I wanted to say earlier. I'm going to lead up to it. But my theory about <laughs> God's Not Dead 2 is that they think that they're building the God's Not Dead cinematic universe. Like the movie that this reminds me the most of is like Avengers Age of Ultron or something. <laughs> and that it, I think it, I don't know if. I mean, Will, you probably could follow the plot, but most of the stuff in this movie doesn't make any sense if you haven't seen the first one. There's you're yes. like, why is this Chinese guy there, right? There's the left wing blogger who had her cancer cured. There's this entire scene with the car salesman. <laughs> And they're literally just so you can be like, oh, I remember that guy from the first movie. Even Joss Wheaton or Josh Wheaton, the hero from the first one, uh, jo- Josh Wheaton, he's uh, <laughs> Joss Wheaton, whatever the fuck that character's name is. He's referenced by Martin, the, uh, the the kid from China. So, yeah, you're right, Alex. The film does build this vast cosmology of reference points. And yeah, throughout it, I found myself pointing them out to Will and being like, oh, my God, it's that guy. <laughs> and it's literally just much like, you know, I would go see these movies, like the Marvel movies. Like, I probably saw 60% of them and I would just yeah. be like, I have no idea what's going on like because <laughs> yeah. I didn't watch you know whatever you know the the bow what's the bow man I don't know. Uh, oh, I know who you're t- the the Jeremy Renner. Yeah, yeah. Not not my favorite Avenger. I have. I, to have, say. I have no idea what that. He's my favorite Avenger well, as a guy, but not as a as an entrepreneur. Yeah, his app is where I found my wife. Um, <laughs> but uh, but so, I did follow very closely the central drama of the film. So Melissa Joan Hart is on trial, literally, for the crime of 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 mentioning Jesus. And there are two attorneys. Uh, the prosecuting attorney is played by uh, Twin Peaks's Ray Wise, who's a cynical old veteran, and he's from the ACLU. He's launched a campaign. He thinks that this is going to be a precedent to basically outlaw all mention of Christianity and Christ in public forums once and for all. There, there's a further motivation as well, which is that you know he convinces the parents, who are the non-believing parents of this young woman, who asks you know the question about isn't this thing Jesus said isn't that like Gandhi and MLK? Her parents are very anxious that she's not going to get into Stanford. And this guy is sort of like, uh, well, Stanford's going to love it. The admissions committee, if they find out that you persecuted a Christian, her admission to Stanford is a sure thing. Right. And defending Melissa Joan Hart is Jesse Metcalf, who uh, cineasts will remember played... uh, what the f- fuck? What was that movie called? Just a I was also thinking about this, too. You're talking about John Tucker Must Die. John Tucker Must Die. I, I almost said win a date with Tad Hamilton. A dollar store Carson Daly, basically. Right. So this is where he's ended up. He plays, yeah, Melissa Joan Hart's attorney. And he's actually a non-believer at the start of the movie, interestingly. But what he does believe in is freedom. And he believes in being able to speak your mind. So he takes her case. Now, originally, he urges her to just make an apology. But she won't do that because she will never apologize for Christ. So they end up 
in a jury trial, we get to see a little bit of how the legal system works to persecute Christians. Anybody who professes any sort of faith in Christ, anybody who says they watch Duck Dynasty on TV will be taken out of the jury roles. I'll add that that is also a reference to the first movie in which members of the Robertson family appear as well. Well, (laughs) in fact, Sadie Robertson, the daughter of Willie Robertson, is one of the top build cast members in this movie as well. So the franchise retains its ties to the Duck Dynasty uh, dynasty. Presiding over the trial is Ernie Hudson as the world's worst judge, who uh, (laughs) seems to be learning about law with each new objection. (laughs) So the case begins pretty much as you would expect it to. Ray Wise begins by saying Christianity is not on trial, the teacher is on trial. But as we know, Christianity is on trial. Jesse Metcalf, in defending her, tries to go the the old-fashioned route, tries to play by the rules, but then realizes that there's, there's so much more at stake here. He has to prove, really, that God exists. That's what this trial is actually about. So he brings in a couple of authors to testify. Now, Alex, maybe you can confirm. I think these are actual authors who actually wrote the books that they're credited with writing. There's there's the case for Christ, that guy. And there's another guy who is a forensic pathologist, I believe. He worked in the NYPD, I think. And, uh, LAPD, wrote a, I think, but yeah. LAPD, and he wrote a book allegedly proving the crucifixion. Well, we have a number of techniques that we can use to test the reliability of an eyewitness, including something called forensic statement analysis. That's a discipline where we scrutinize the statements of eyewitnesses and looking at what they choose to minimize, what they choose to emphasize, what they omit altogether, how they expand time or contract time. And when we examine these kinds of eyewitness accounts, we can usually tell who's lying and who's telling the truth and even who the guilty party is. did you apply this skill set any time outside of your official capacity? Yes, I applied my expertise to the death of Jesus at the hands of the Romans. And I actually looked at the Gospels as I would any other set of forensic statements. Within a matter of months, I determined that the four Gospels, written from different perspectives, contained the eyewitness accounts about the life ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, this is where the movie, I mean, the movie which is off the rails from the beginning, I mean, I couldn't believe, like, when when they had a guy on the stand, you know, the new witness is a former LAPD, like, forensic detective. I was like, there's no way that this is going to be what I think it is. And then, yeah, it literally was that. It's like, this guy, his whole thing, the reason he's brought in to testify is because he used the forensic method applied by the LAPD to solve cold cases, and he used the gospel as eyewitness accounts to objectively prove the existence of Jesus. And then, you know, the sort of heathen ACLU guy or whatever is like, but you were a Christian going into this, right? And he's like, no, no, I began as an unbelieving skeptic. I was not raised in Christianity, but just the, the process of investigating this case taught me that it's objectively true. So this gets at one of the other anxieties of this movie that I find really interesting. And all it's very, it's dated in this weird way. But the first movie is like this, maybe even more so, it's just they're obsessed with the new atheists. And they're obsessed with this idea that there are these people that are applying cold logic to Christian dogma. This creates the weirdest and it's so boring, mostly, because what they decide to do is to be like, well, what's on trial here is if Jesus Christ was a historical figure. And you're like, pretty much everybody is like, yeah, yeah no, Jesus was a historical figure. Like, <laughs> like they're like, it's it's not well, not Ray Wise, uh, <laughs> prosecuting attorney who is who is sitting, trembling, shaking, fuming with shock <laughs> that that non-biblical sources allude to Jesus Christ as having existed. This is news to him. So it, it 
it was in this part of the film, you know, the sort of, I don't know, when, when act two has just been going on for like 90 minutes and you're in like the 15th courtroom scene or whatever. This is the part where, you know, this is now happening with almost every episode we do now, if, at least if it's something bad, where I just realized that doing this podcast has fundamentally changed the way my brain works. It has rewired like my pleasure centers when it comes to what entertains me because I just had like this giant grin on my face. Like when, the, when that LAPD detective got up on the stand, I was just grinning like from head to toe because it's like you have this movie where the plot is ostensibly this low stakes civil case about, you know, did it? I mean, let's be realistic. If this was a thing in real life, granting that all of it is very improbable to begin with, like this might be subject of discussion at a school board meeting or something like the idea that this would go to a jury case is absurd. But then even then the film just it can't like keep its powder dry, like having uh, embraced that as a premise because the whole thing turns into like the court case is about the objective truth of, you know, right wing Christianity. And then at the end, when they come out of the courthouse, because, yeah, guess what? They win the trial. We'll talk about how that happens in a sec. Just pumping their fists to crowds of, you know, adoring, cheering people. You know, the young woman, you know, who asked Sabrina, the teenage witch, the, you know, the question prompting the whole plot of the movie to begin with. She just like gleefully announces the whole crowd. God's not dead. And then they just start chanting like. God's not dead. He's surely alive, which is just a really shitty chant. Under, the meter is off. And... the bad, like, songwriting of the newsboys. That's, that's right. And then we get a news clip. There's, like, a make-believe news network that keeps, you know, like, postmodern heathen, you know, news. I believe it's called Apex News, which is... Yeah, yeah a- Apex News. And it's both an antagonist and it's sort of just a device for exposition. And then I'm pretty sure after the court case concludes, we see a broadcast on that where it's like, the court today upheld uh, the, the teachings of Jesus or whatever. So this movie, which starts out and, and even frames itself to some extent, it's like a debate about, you know, freedom of expression and stuff. Like the film is unable to just like restrain itself and it just has to be, it has to be about just whether this is true or not. Well, there's this goofy bait and switch in it in which the actual offense has to be so anodyne. And in this case, it's like, Something that would literally be, she is an, they just call it AP history in this, but she is an AP history teacher. And again, if you're asked, you know, like the teachings of Jesus Christ, like I'm, I don't want to get hauled off to jail, but like they inspired both Martin Luther King Jr., a minister and Mahatma Gandhi. (laughs) Like this is part of whatever your education, but like, obviously what the religious right wants to do is to just make mandatory Christianity in schools, but they can't say that. So instead it's just a trial of our literally mentioning the existence of Jesus. And then the funny thing too is that, and this is like, I think the thing that I find genuinely offensive about these movies is that they are hostile to the concept of faith itself, or they treat people like they're idiots. And in this case, it's this weird, you know, the cold case Christianity guy who rules. So there's some good Goodreads reviews of the book and I recommend <laughs> people check out. He's got a good website. He's got some YouTube videos, but you know, he's like, oh, I've proved the existence of Jesus. I mean, sort of like the line Lionel Hutz thing where he's like, what color is my tie? You know, and he's just like, well, I, you know, at one verse, you know, in, Ma- or in Matthew, you know, they asked, it's kind of funny. It's, it, you know, it's like, who's punished?
punching you or whatever. When they're beating up Jesus, you know, they're saying, oh, prophesize, you know, tell us who's punching you. Uh, and he's like, well, because this happens in two gospels, it must be true. Again, there's not a lot of debate about Jesus as a historical figure, but the idea of Jesus Christ being resurrected, being the son of God, you know, this being the path towards the salvation of mankind, right? This is not something that you can prove. This is like the actual bedrock of faith. And they just like shunt that all aside. And they're just like, well, we've established he's a real guy. Jesus is real. Christianity is the one. And I'm like, there's way more evidence that Muhammad existed. Like all of you people should be Muslims if this is the basis of your right. <laughs> well, the movie reveals what its actual goals are in that early scene where Sabrina the Teenage Witch is hanging out at home with her father, played by Pat Boone, <laughs> who says words to the effect of all this talk about human rights and we've lost sight of the most important human right of all, which is the right to know Jesus. <laughs> and I think what that translates to in practical terms is the right to have prayer in school, the right to have, you know, the nativity scene at City Hall, etc. 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 There is a fundamental dishonesty at the heart of these movies and the arguments they're making because they both want to gesture at yeah what the real agenda is, which is just you know we should have just you know like Christian education should just be what public education is, but then they also kind of want to make. Well, they know they can't actually say that. So what they're pretending that it's like, we'll all mention, you know, any mention. Uh, he can't even be referenced. Uh, you can't even wear your little your little rosary around your neck at school without the ACLU coming at you. That's right. I mean, so they kind of cloak it in these freedom of speech arguments where they're sort of also trying to say, no, no, no. Like, we just believe in, like, the neutral all viewpoints. That's what we're arguing here. And it's like, that's not what, <laughs> that's not what these films are arguing. And it's not what the people who watch them, at least... The people who watch them unironically. It's not what they believe. Which is why I prefer a movie like, you know, If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do? Which which just which just comes out and says, yes, this is the truth. <laughs> yes, and by blood and cross, this so, is the truth. So get on board or go to hell, literally. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there's a sort of subtle Talibanism running through this movie, where they essentially <laughs> yeah. are advocating for theocracy all the time, but they're so anxious about the power of liberal thought in institutions much like in the first one that they're like oh no we have to we have to essentially make this like darwinism right and we have to make it so this is so totemically true that everyone just has to accept it mm -hmm. and my favorite uh, of the expert witnesses is another one of the authors who when they're like well what can you point to to show that jesus exists and he's like have you ever looked at our calendar you may have noticed that there's a ad bc <laughs> case closed my friend I, I really felt that Judge Ernie Hudson should have reined that in, didn't you? Yes. Okay, well, I've got one more detail that I noticed that I, I just want to mention here because of my recent immersion in uh, in Pink Floyd. So this tickled me in particular. But during one of the courtroom scenes or, or when they're going into the courthouse, when there's like the unbelieving protest, because there are several like violent, angry protests of like heathens or whatever. One of them has a sign that has like the logo from Dark Side of the Moon on it, but then it, it it says, hey, preacher, leave those kids alone, which I just I, ju I just loved as a detail. I mean, one of the other things to go back to the question of normality in this movie. And again, I also find this well, it's more obviously offensive, but everyone who's associated with the administrative state 
is shown as being evil that when Pastor Dave is called to bring his sermons in after he's been subpoenaed, there's this county clerk who's like eating ribs in the most disgusting way you've ever seen at his <laughs> desk. And when he refuses to comply with the order, he like stands up and it's just like, you don't know who you're mess. You know, like the nail that sticks up is the one that gets hammered down. All the <laughs> Christian protesters are these kind of uh, live blonde teenagers for some reason. And like, well, because they're, they're normal. They're, yeah. they're very normal. Yes. And multiracial. And then the atheists are just like these hideous old crones who are screaming. <laughs> I mean, it's adjacent to the trial sequence in another great filmmaker, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. Right, uh, right. Where you're just like, you can't you can't resist. Yeah, the prosecuting attorneys in that scene uh, all, se- all seem to have a certain identity in common, didn't they? I, don't, I didn't notice that, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what can we say about how the trial wraps up? Uh, Jesse Metcalf uh, uh, tries an unorthodox strategy of... Um... Yeah, he, he rolls a hard six, and he he actually implores the jury to convict my client. And the whole strategy, it turns out, is that you know by doing this and making Sabrina the Teenage Witch cry on the stand, it will show to the jury you know the earnestness of, of her beliefs. And you know he's, he's setting up the stakes of the whole thing to be, if you rule against her, you're basically just banning all Christianity from the public sphere, and they decide not to do that. And so Christianity wins. The court rules in favor of Jesus. Tell us, Grace, under penalty of perjury, what was the question that God presented to you personally that night on campus? Answer the question. Answer the question! Who do you say that I am? And what did you answer? The son of the living God. Your Honor, I I think we've all heard quite enough. Miss Emma, are you looking to change your client's plea? No, Your Honor. I say she's innocent of all wrongdoing. But I'm asking the jury to find against her anyway. I mean, let's face it. She has the audacity to believe not only that there is a God, but that she has a personal relationship with him, which colors everything that she says and does. So at a certain point, this has become a a national cause celeb. Uh, There are hordes and hordes of people outside the court. Uh, I feel like this strand could have been better developed, honestly, the kind of accumulating national fervor around this. But nevertheless, it's a great day for Christianity. The newsboys who have not been in enough of the film, if you ask me deliver a concert at the packed stadium. Ray Wise notes that he will not appeal the decision because it could establish a precedent and uh, uh, it's better to take on another case. So this is like, yeah, you know, as you said earlier, a Marvel villain saying like, well, you haven't got me yet, Iron Man. Uh, I'll be back in the next movie. There's a great detail where where his like junior attorney who's with him is like, yeah, and plus, she, you know, she they proved that Christianity is true and he just shakes his fist like, ah. I'm really hoping he would die honestly <laughs> like i wanted i wanted to see some like harder justice meet him but no an odd show of restraint and taste by the filmmakers to let him live so alex to, to send us out here can you tell us what happened with pastor dave and the deleted scene that we missed because we decided to leave it at the newsboys i should have alerted you too because I, I had remembered it being i fi- i literally finished watching this about 30 seconds before we recorded <laughs> uh, but i remembered the cutscene and i thought it was quicker but it ends with uh um, Pastor Dave, he is going back to his church with his friend. 
they're walking up the stairs and a couple jackbooted thugs from the Little Rock police office or whatever come and they say, Pastor Dave, you are under arrest for contempt of court for failing to provide your sermons to the state. And he's hauled off to prison, thus setting up God's Not Dead 3. Oh, man. Well, yeah, that that like this is sort of based on a real case. So Houston, Houston had passed an anti-discrimination law and there was a brief effort to subpoena sermons to see if they were complying with a language that I don't think it even criminalized it. But it, it, there was some sort of penalty for homophobic language. This became a cause celeb on the right. It was quickly dropped. No one was arrested. Nothing happened. Uh, but it is the basis of the third movie, because I believe in that. Pastor Dave's church is on the college from the first movie, uh, and the college tries to kick him off because he's too righteous. Well, I'm already salivating to watch part three, although perhaps we'll get some distance between this one and our, our next viewing. But Alex, we will certainly have you back. This was an absolute pleasure. I This, I, is, this <laughs> is far beneath you, so thank you for doing <laughs> yeah. that. Well, I love it. This is the third time I've seen this movie. Can I, ask you, can I ask you one question before we go? Yeah. Do you think that Toyota paid them money to get because I think that they did because there are so many mentions of Priuses in this Pastor Dave's Prius. <laughs> so, so I actually thought that was really interesting. The first time they said Prius, I thought, are they making a joke that he's that he's lib? Are they making fun of him for having a Prius? Because that's such a signifier of lib culture. And then I thought, are they actually trying to establish that he's normal? Like this is just another of the kind of like tapestry of of like, this is a normal chill guy who like drives a Prius just like you do. <laughs> he's not weird. He's not he's not a freak. But now I, I actually do think you're right. I do think somebody at Toyota and somebody at this company said this is mutually beneficial. <laughs> and I think that they were right. I think that they, they got the production money and Toyota is trying to establish was the Prius as a car for people from for all everyone. sorts of yeah yeah <laughs> By the way, have you been following this stuff with uh, Sound of Freedom slash uh, are you tempted at all to watch that movie? Yeah, I am tempted to watch it. I w are you guys going to do it? If you do it, I would watch it. I mean, we were not going to since other people have done it, but I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of getting the itch to watch it now that it's becoming a sort of bona fide cultural phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me about this is that you're watching that and this movie came out in what 2016 yeah god's not dead yeah, yeah, yeah too yeah. and it and it feels actually like it's from a different era still like it's preoccupation is with like sam harris and christopher hitchens and i think also there's a kind of like tepidness to its culture warrior stuff like they're almost embarrassed to, it's all like slid in right yeah all the kind of like facts and logic like the we can outfox them on their own terms yeah the fact that they're now kind of just embracing like like they're coming for your children. They're literally trafficking your children and we've, we've, got, we've got to stop them. That's interesting to me. 
Yeah, because in this, it's implied at various points that there's a sinister, shadowy liberal cabal that is trying to, you know, they, they keep saying, you know, like there's a point where Pastor Dave, I think, right, says, you know, we're in a war, right? Mm-hmm. And if we don't fight the war, then you lose. And it's this idea that they're being brought. But like that type of fieriness isn't really in this. Whereas, I mean, you know, like the other is just a straight up QAnon movie. And I think mm-hmm. it's much closer to where the right gets. And this, you can feel that bridge slowly being built, but it's mm-hmm. not, it doesn't like embrace that kind of just like straight up red meat culture war stuff. And I think also with it, the other related cue thing, which is just that this is this thing that gives all these people that have no purpose in life meaning where they can just mm-hmm. be like, oh, I'm, you know, like I'm here to protect children, right? There's no more noble cause than going up to some random woman in the grocery store and being like, hey, is that your actual kid or did you steal it or whatever, which is essentially what they're all advocating for doing now. I think the first God's Not Dead predicts some of the like rise of whatever debate me culture on the right but this this movie could have come out when i was doing christian youth group in like 2006 or something mm-hmm. and it would have like largely still fit into the narrative of just like we're kind and decent people and well something that this movie is lacking is it doesn't really have any of the kind of like trans or groomer or like any of that any of that stuff that's come to dominate sort of religious tinged culture war stuff on the right and that's interesting too because i think one of the things in the first two movies is it, it exists, this idea, this conspiracy against Christians, but it's still like hazy and ill-defined and it requires being backfilled. So there are villains, but the villains are to some extent actually not super. They're like older Fox News villains. It's college professors and the ACLU. To some extent, it's like lawyers, uh, school boards. But I feel like that's not, you know, that's not as sexy a villain as, say, people who are coming to kidnap and rape your children. You know, right, right. And like, and now I think what you have is like there's still there's still like sort of great like it's seen as a kind of institutional battle, right? In which there are there's the liberal people and they might they're bad and we don't like them and they want to kill Christians, but at least they're somewhat like an equal not moral foundation. But there's no effort in this to be like well there is well, some Ray Wise is arguing in court in <laughs> yes. this movie, like yes. he's following the old the old gentleman rules of conflict. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, and I think that that normalizes this too because it's just like well this is still a process that we can all participate in whereas mm-hmm. what you get increasingly is just like oh no we need a like an actual separate society we need to mm-hmm. and we need to eradicate the people the groomers and they're everywhere and the aclu mm-hmm. is full of groomers all these other you know these other institutions are i mean it's the QAnon thing right is it's not just that the democratic party is bad because they don't want us to say jesus in school it's bad because they literally are involved in a multinational conspiracy to sexually abuse children, which is hard to argue. You know, it's hard to argue with that, really. I, I know. I, I, I'd love to, but unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, personally, I think that's very bad. Um, I'm very strongly <laughs> against it.